And so I would um, normally be inclined this morning to begin by asking a question like, so what have you been noticing lately? Which actually is a pretty good question to ask, to pause and reflect on what's going on in the lives of people around us and perhaps maybe even where God is at work in your own lives and where things may be surfacing for you. That's actually a good question to ponder, to kind of hang on to and circle back to. Uh, I was reminded of that again while Donna was praying this morning. And so I'd encourage you to keep that question. But this morning, I'd like to invite you to consider another question. Not instead of that one. I mean, continue to hang on to that question. But in addition to that one. And that question is this. So what are you missing this morning? Of course, that's a much more challenging question to answer because it's asking you to bring to mind something that we clearly do not know or not paying attention to. Otherwise, we wouldn't be missing them. Which is why if I were to say to you, you just don't know what you're missing, there's a sense in which that would pretty much always be true because we don't know what we don't know which is why we don't know what we're missing. But of course, as you do know, probably the way that phrase gets used the most, for better or for worse, is as a way to try to persuade someone to do something or to try something that they might not otherwise be inclined to do. And you can probably already think of all kinds of ways that that phrase can go very wrong in the lives of people. But it doesn't always necessarily have to go that way. Uh, it can go other ways as well. When I was a, a kid growing up in La Sierra in the 60s and early 70s, uh, in those days, typical fast food was mostly a matter of a place that sold burgers or hot dogs, french fries maybe, ice cream cones, few places you might find here and there. Uh, I remember in, in La Sierra, there's a little place called Cindy's. It used to be down by the Stater Brothers, where we used to go to get frosty cones. And at least around the people that I grew up with, except for an occasional taco on a rare occasion, Mexican food was not much of a regular thing at all. And the whole idea of fast food was nothing like it is today. In fact, as it turns out, and here's a little fast food trivia for you, the very first Taco Bell didn't even open until about 1962. That was in the city of Downey, about the time I was in first or second grade. The first Del Taco opened just a couple of years later in Yermo, out in the desert as you go towards Indio. And it took them a few years before they managed to find their way to La Sierra, where I was living. I'm not sure exactly when they got there, but since in those days I wasn't paying much attention to what was going on in the world of Mexican food in general, or really fast food that much, it was in high school or academy before I ever even heard of those places. And it happened when a friend of mine suggested that we go down to Del Taco and get a burrito. <laughs> and I said something like, so what is that anyway? I don't even think I've ever had a burrito. To which he said, oh man, you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> and you know, he was right. I actually discovered a whole new world of food that day that had been completely off my radar. 
I'd actually driven by Del Taco a number of times, but because it wasn't part of what I was familiar with, because it wasn't a place that I recognized, never really gave it much thought. I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know what I was missing. But then sometimes the idea of not knowing what we're missing reflects another kind of experience too. Not one that comes from a lack of information, but perhaps a lack of full appreciation. We hear the phrase sometimes connected with a loss or the absence of someone, or perhaps an ability that we once had, some aspect of our health, those kind of things causing us to appreciate even more fully those people or things that we did appreciate before, but whose absence brings things into sharper focus for us. Even during times when we look forward and hope to restoration or healing, and even as we may have to adapt in the meantime. So that's another way the phrase gets used. But whatever form the phrase may take in our own lives, if we're honest, I suspect that most of us would have to admit to times when it applies to us probably more than we wish it did. And when we think about it a little more, we can also see that it seems to be a rather persistent, common thread that is woven through the lives of all kinds of people, whoever they are, wherever you find them, across time and culture and circumstances, and certainly in the lives of those whose lives we find recorded in Scripture. So why is it then that we sometimes don't know what we're missing? Well, as we've already noticed, sometimes we don't know because we don't know what we don't know. Sometimes we don't know, perhaps because we have filters in place that keep us from seeing what we could know if we were aware enough to know that we had filters and could make allowances for them. Sometimes we don't know because we have not experienced what other people have experienced. We know what it's like to be us, but we don't know what it's like to be someone else. And so we just don't get it. We really don't. And perhaps sometimes we don't know simply because we're not listening. Or even to. Or have already decided not to. But whatever the reason is, or what the combination of reasons might be, when we don't know what we're missing, tragically, we can wind up missing quite a lot. Which is exactly what happened about this time of year, quite a number of years ago right now. And which continues to happen on all kinds of levels and with some kind of regularity because humanity seems to have become quite adept at not knowing what we're missing. Now, for those of you who might happen to follow the liturgical calendar, you'll know that we are in a season of time right now that leads up to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's a time in which we're invited to pause and to reflect. 
If you happen to be on the uh, email list of the La Sierra University Church, they actually have a little email they send out every day for 40 days leading up to Easter. It gives you an opportunity to pause and reflect on those events that lead up to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And so if you're actually paying attention to the liturgical calendar, you will know that tomorrow is in fact what? Yes, tomorrow is Palm Sunday, which marks the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem just five days before the cross, just one week before the resurrection. And so in keeping with that calendar this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John 12, where John records what was happening on that first Palm Sunday afternoon, and where we can see a bit of what we've been talking about this morning, very much in play in the lives of people who were there for that event. John 12, 12 begins with this phrase, the next day. It's a phrase that reminds us that what he's about to describe is coming after something that had just happened the day before, which we'll come back to in just a second. But for now, let's go ahead and just read the account of the event here that begins in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now you have to appreciate that this was quite a moment. For the first time, Jesus allowed his followers to make a public declaration of who he was as the king. As in fulfillment of the messianic prophecy, as John quotes here in the passage, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey as king. This was the moment the disciples had been waiting for they thought that their hopes for their idea of the kingdom were now about to be fulfilled. But as John goes on to point out, we read in verse 16, the disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize. They knew what their expectations were but they didn't know what they were missing. And as verses 17 to 18 tell us, because they saw the crowd that had assembled for this, many of whom had witnessed the, or had heard about, the resurrection of Lazarus just a few days before, there were Pharisees who were also present, who were focused on a few things as well as they watched the crowd that day. We can read about that in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The disciples were so locked into their version of how the events were supposed to unfold, and the Pharisees were so worried about losing influence and power and the way of life they had become accustomed to, 
even though they were right there in the middle of what was happening, they didn't know what they were missing. Which is probably why they would have been so puzzled at what happened as Jesus approached the city. Here's how Luke and his gospel described what took place next. It says in Luke chapter 19, begins with verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So why didn't they know? Was Jesus not being clear? Was Jesus maybe just a bit too cryptic up to this point about what was going to happen? Well, in case we might be tempted to think so, we are reminded that what happened on Palm Sunday happened on the next day. Remember those words back at the beginning of, uh, of verse 12? It was the day after something had happened. So what had happened on the day before? Well, let's go back up to verse 1 of chapter 12 and notice what had just taken place. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, as we would expect, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So what was it that Mary was doing here? Well, according to verses 4 to 6, Judas apparently had the same question and some criticism to go along with it, to which Jesus responds in verse 7, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Mary, the scripture tells us, was anointing Jesus. On the way to the triumphal entry to Jerusalem, the one in which the disciples hoped that their glorious vision of the kingdom was about to be realized, and on which the Pharisees feared that their version of the kingdom was about to be threatened, and on which Jesus paused to weep over the city, saying, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. At this pivotal moment in history, they all got the palm branches and praises part, but they didn't get the tears part. They didn't know what they were missing. And it's not because they had not heard. It was because they had heard without listening. But on the day before, what Mary did reflected that on some level, not only had she heard what Jesus was saying, but she also had been listening, even though she didn't understand at all. And even as Jesus spoke of what was coming in ways that were probably very confusing to her, 
however much it may have challenged what she thought she knew, Mary had listened to the words of Jesus. And she may have been one of the few sources of encouragement to Jesus at that time, as he sat among so many others who did not get what was about to happen. Well, you know, and it's not like Jesus had not been clear about this before that even. We can think of lots of occasions. You look back in chapter 16 of Matthew's gospel, where this profound moment in the lives of the disciples took place, where Jesus looks to his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, speaking for the disciples, responds, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. To which Jesus responds, yes, this is the rock on which I will build my church. Kudos to Peter for getting the right answer, right? But then as the verses that follow also tell us, we notice this, beginning in verse 21 of that same chapter. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. All sounds pretty clear. They should have known what to expect when they were going to Jerusalem. And the response to the disciples when they heard that of the disciples, verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Peter's not just failing to grasp what he is hearing, although he is doing that as well but he is actively choosing to reject what he is hearing. To which Jesus responds with a startling directness that you don't often find in the words of Jesus, identifying not only the cause of Peter's resistance, but the source that was motivating it, as he hears in Peter's words the same voice that had tempted him in the wilderness. Verse 23, Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. It's interesting how they could get to that point. All through his life and ministry, from the first declaration by John the Baptist to behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, through conversations and parables and teachings, and in the final days of Jesus' ministry, explicit statements that are almost impossible to misunderstand, Jesus had been sharing with them both the nature of his kingdom and what they could clearly expect was going to happen when they reached Jerusalem. Lots of people had heard him and been encouraged and blessed. Many had reacted in one way or another to his words. But actually listening to him, that apparently was much more challenging. And as John goes on to tell the rest of the story of that week and of what followed the triumphal entry and the rest of chapter 12, we find Jesus continues to reaffirm to them what is going to be happening over the course of the week. And he is reaffirmed by a voice from heaven. You can read about that in chapter 12. And John continues to encourage us to listen well to what Jesus is saying. 
We then get to chapter 13 as we move on through this week, where the disciples gather together at the beginning of their last evening and meal together, still contending with each other about who's going to be the greatest one in their version of the kingdom. And then the basin and towel-bearing Jesus gently seems to move them from their still distorted understanding of what he had said into a posture from which they can hear better what he actually has to say. He washes their feet so they can begin to see what they're missing, so they can begin a little bit more to know a little bit more of what they didn't know they didn't know, but should have known by then. Well, there was a lot more they had to talk about that evening, and they did. Talked about what it meant to live out of grace rather than anxiety, about what God was really like and how they could see him in Jesus. Abiding in the vine and loving each other and how the Spirit would continue to be with them. And yet, even in the midst of all that was said and all they had seen and heard over three years or so being with Jesus, there were still things they did not yet see there were still huge things that they were losing in their blind spots. Some of which would become clear shortly after the resurrection, but some things which would still take years. Things that would take a sheet full of unclean animals raised down on your roof while you're praying to get through to you about. And that's not even to mention issues that had to do with things that had to be resolved later in terms of slavery or the dignity of women, and much more that the church still had to struggle with. Which may be why in the midst of the conversation that night, Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, 12, these words, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So the reality of that week leading up to the death and the resurrection of Jesus is that it was a week that put on full display the extent to which we are capable of not knowing what we are missing. That's really what we see demonstrated throughout that week. And as we reflect on that week, perhaps it is the capacity that we have to do just exactly that that we really ought to take more seriously so that we don't end up needlessly making the same kind of mistakes that we did during that first week. The disciples and the Pharisees alike had been so shaped by their Jewish nationalism and religious culture that they couldn't, and in some cases perhaps just wouldn't, wrap their minds and lives around the kind of kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming. They were blinded to it. It was a week that demonstrated that some were so threatened that those who should have known better actually abandoned all personal integrity and actually plotted the death of Jesus. Religious leaders among them. And by the end of the week, a whole crowd had been worked up to such a state that they actually, when given the choice, chose Barabbas over Jesus. That's how bad blindness can be when we don't know what we're missing. In his book, The Singer, K. 
Calvin Miller expressed his reflection on the events of this week like this, and I think he puts it really well. Humanity is fickle. They may dress for a morning coronation and never feel the need to change clothes to attend an execution in the afternoon. So triumphal Sundays and Good Fridays always fit comfortably into the same April week. It's a lot to ponder there. Sadly, humanity has not lost its capacity for this. But the good news is that we are not destined to this either. To borrow a phrase from Rob Bell, we don't have to live like this. Jesus seems to be quite confident that we can become aware of blind spots if we're willing. And as we learn to listen better, we can become aware of what we don't know. We can hear more clearly. We can discern what God is saying. But it's not easy. Because sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And particularly for those who claim that they can see just fine, thank you, getting past denial can be particularly challenging. After the healing of the blind man that you can read about in, in the story that John tells in chapter 9 of his gospel, you might remember this comment that Jesus makes and then the short exchange he has with the Pharisees afterwards. Let me share with you just a, a brief glimpse into that again. John chapter 9, beginning with verse 29. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. See, God can't fix what we won't admit is broken. But when we are willing to see, when we are willing to notice what we've been missing, to listen and learn, maybe make adjustments and grow, amazing things can happen. When we take the stance that Mary did as a listener at the feet of Jesus, we may begin to hear and see what we or others too often miss. For some, the week leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus was all about getting swept up into the chaos that served religious or political agendas and that resisted everything that Jesus had been saying. But for those who had been listening, even if they didn't understand it all the time, and even if they didn't yet know exactly how it was going to work out, and didn't know all that they didn't know yet, there was a lot to listen to that would eventually become clear, and it would become clear in ways they had never imagined. Which makes you kind of wonder what would happen if we were all willing to let go of the cultural and religious and political and personal things that create our blind spots things that so often prevent us from seeing other people for who they are or who make it difficult for us to see God for who God is. What would happen if we really risked listening and seeing? 
I think what would happen is illustrated powerfully in a very short video clip. It's one that I think you've probably seen before, but it's worth seeing again. And I'd like to share it with you right now, just to give you a glimpse of what it might look like to pause and listen and to see. Let's go ahead and show the clip.
we will go to the zoo. Uh -huh. uh, maybe next this few days. Uh -huh. oh, yes. I will text you if you would like to. <laughs> I will love it. Of course. Yeah. We can do it. <laughs> uh, when I was looking into her eyes, I was trying to see what I could tell from the life that she lived, and I think I could tell that there was a lot of experience lived there. It doesn't matter, look in the eyes or something, just uh, give yourself a chance to talk and to look at the other person. It is just one small glimpse of what Jesus came to do with us and in us and how he invites us to be with each other and what it looks like when the kingdom and lived. Perhaps it's even a glimpse of what the church that Jesus built on the declaration that Peter made can look like when we're really listening. And it was perhaps the rejection of what we glimpse here that caused Jesus to weep as he looked over the city he was entering on that first Palm Sunday so many years ago, knowing what was within their grasp and knowing what they walked away from. I wonder on how many such Sundays since then Jesus has had tears in his eyes. But the good news is that despite how so many people responded that week to his offer of the kingdom, particularly on Thursday and Friday, Jesus continued to proclaim the good news of God's love and grace with clarity all through the week, and even in one of the last things that he said in one of his last prayers from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know, they don't know what they're missing. And so as we have the opportunity to reflect on that last week, over the course of this next week, we're invited to be willing to acknowledge, maybe just willing to become aware of those places in our lives where we don't know what we're missing. We're invited to look into the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of others this week and to see if we can see what it is that we've been missing. Perhaps with a basin and towel in hand it might help and we do that as we anticipate what we celebrate next Sabbath and then as we live in the wake of it. It was John who wrote in the opening words of his gospel these words in verse 5 of chapter 1. The light shines in the darkness. And then there are two possible ways to read the next phrase of that verse. Both of them, I believe, are true. The first is, and the darkness has not understood it, which is true. 
But even more importantly is the second ending. And the darkness has not overcome it. That those words might resonate deeply as we listen together this week is my prayer for us this morning. Father in heaven, we are truly overwhelmed with your amazing grace. And the invitation that we have to be able to embrace that and to live out of that. As we prepare for what we celebrate this next week, as we ponder our own lives this week, we pray that you would take the blinders off and you would help us to glimpse the kingdom that you went through so much to make available to us. That's our prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.